Welcome to Season 2 of Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. This week's episode is the first of two dedicated to the Queen of TV, Heather Locklear. Locklear spent the entirety of the 1980s and 1990s and part of the 2000s on hit television shows, specifically Aaron Spelling TV shows. I have discussed the Spelling universe and the reach of his cultural influence on my Sidney Andrews episode. I suggest you listen to that episode, if you haven't already, for some more context. I will do a brief breakdown here, but it will prove helpful to listen to that one, too. Spelling ruled the airwaves for nearly three decades. He began his career as a writer on The Big Valley, the Western television show starring Barbara Stanwyck. She introduced her then-florist, Nolan Miller, to Aaron Spelling. Miller became Spelling's go-to costume designer. He created the most iconic looks on Dynasty. Miller also designed Spelling's daughter, Tori Spelling's prom dress, and Heather Locklear's second wedding dress. Spelling shows include Charlie's Angels, Love Boat, Dynasty, T.J. Hooker, 90210, Melrose Place, and Charmed. I am leaving a lot out, so please look at his IMDb if you're interested. Spelling's wife, Candy, is also a fascinating woman to whom, apparently, her husband owed a lot of his career. A deep dive into her is worthwhile. Spelling's relationship with Heather is she was his favorite actress. He called her his lucky penny. He pulled her into Dynasty very early in her career, and over time, he felt that she had the star power to save any ailing show. Entertainment Weekly said of Locklear's unique TV goddess abilities, Locklear is an ideal television actress who excels at mean-minded melodrama. She may not have the glamorous richness of a movie star, but she deploys the sort of sexy superficiality that comes across on the small screen as both excitingly realistic and giddily exaggerated. She is what is commonly called a hoot. I pulled that Entertainment Weekly quote from the book written about Locklear in 1995 called Heather! And while I agree with it, I will also point out that 30 years later, Heather Locklear may not have had the glamorous richness of a movie star, but she certainly did prove to have staying power and star power. She's a cultural icon and a treasured American actress who excelled at playing trash. The key to her success is she did it with a reverence for the women she played and the women watching. Heather Locklear was one of the only actors to do two primetime hit shows simultaneously. She played Sammy Joe Carrington on the long-running Evening Soap Dynasty, and she played rookie cop Stacy Sheridan along William Shatner on T.J. Hooker. But her most famous role is Amanda Woodward on Melrose Place. She also starred in countless TV movies and miniseries and made an indelible mark on Generation X with her cameo in Wayne's World 2. 
She was in a 1988 Disney movie of the week with Diane Cannon called Rock and Roll Mom, which I personally find delightful. She saved Spin City with her gracious guest star presence in 1999-2002 as Caitlin Moore. That was kind of her thing, the woman who could single-handedly save a show with failing ratings. It's why Spelling brought her on Melrose, and it's why what started as a short stint on Dynasty ended up being a full run. The fans wouldn't have it any other way. A letter-writing campaign at the time kept Sammy Joe, Locklear's character, on the show even after she had initially been written out. One of her best roles, and most impressive in terms of acting, was her depiction of Priscilla Davis, wife of Thomas Colin Davis, in the 1995 miniseries Texas Justice, which was based on a true crime that occurred two decades earlier in 1976. I will talk about this project in detail in the second part of what has turned into a two-part episode about Heather Locklear, her character on Melrose, Amanda Woodward, and her role as the real Priscilla Davis in Texas Justice. Locklear's character, Amanda Woodward, on Melrose Place, epitomized the working woman bitch archetype that was both a product of third wave feminism and a backlash to it. The opening paragraph of one of the only books about Heather Locklear's life and career that I mentioned earlier is titled Heather! It's supposed to be an unabashed celebration of all things Locklear. In fact, that is the subtitle of the book. But even this bit of celebrity worship opens up with a paragraph that includes a slut-shaming mix of women-don't-belong-in-the-workplace attitude with a dash of TV's magical ability to suspend disbelief even about a woman's bare thighs. The description of Heather Locklear's character Amanda Woodward's outfit on the set of Melrose is described as follows. She's dressed in a tan suit with a miniskirt that hugs her bare thighs. It's an outfit which, in the real world of business, might be seen as an invitation for sexual harassment. Amanda Woodward may embody female strength in all its glory, including the complicated disdain its existence creates even in the hearts of the women who admire it, but Amanda's brand of power is without a doubt a boys' club brand. She may show some leg, prompting she's asking for it kind of commentary from even her fans, but she is no girl's girl. It would be easy to dismiss her vein of feminism as not my kind of feminism, and to a large extent, it's not. Power gained through traditionally masculine behavior may be the only kind recognized, but it works to dismantle respect for women who are not working high-powered jobs especially when that power is attained through stepping on other women. But here is an important point. Men make their bones off the backs of women. Period. Full stop. It's wildly unfair that to gain similar favor, women who behave in the same way are criticized. I realize in this case I am the one doing the critique, but it's important to say, Amanda is not responsible for other women. She doesn't need to be their savior or even treat them well. I likely would lose patience with her if she were also masculine in dress and speech, but the fact that she will steal your boyfriend and your promotion makes her top-notch in my book. 
She may sell other women out, but she never sells herself out. And she never attempts to tamp down her sexuality, her desires, or her bouncy blonde hair. Heather Locklear has proven herself to be a strong presence culturally. She is a vibrant woman with a complicated public and private life. She has spent decades struggling in the public eye with addiction and difficult men. Her issues, although tragic, are some of the most relatable character flaws around. I am not in the business of talking trash about American royalty, but I think that some of her more personal struggles are relevant to the larger discussion about what is dismissed and or celebrated in women more generally. Locklear married Tommy Lee of Motley Crue fame in 1985, during her reign on Dynasty. Their marriage lasted seven years and ended in divorce, reportedly because of his infidelities and temper. Tommy married Pamela Anderson just months after his divorce from Locklear was final. After a grace period passed, she married Richie Sambora, the guitarist for Bon Jovi. The two made a loving couple and stayed together for 11 years. They have one child together, a daughter named Ava. It was her marriage to Richie that she wore the wedding dress designed for her by spelling costume designer Nolan Miller. I will post a picture of Heather wearing that dress on the podcast's Instagram page. In 2007, Locklear started dating her on-screen Melrose Place husband, Jack Wagner, who played Dr. Peter Burns. In 2007, Locklear started dating her on-screen Melrose husband, Jack Wagner, who played Dr. Peter Burns. The couple announced their engagement in 2011, but were split by 2012. After the engagement was called off, Wagner reportedly showed up at Locklear's home to drop off some of her things when a fight occurred. The police were called, but the charges on both sides were dropped. He reportedly pushed her, and she punched him in the face. Which, let's be honest, creates a deep sense of kinship in my heart for her and all women who snap. Locklear is currently engaged to Chris Heiser, her former high school sweetheart. There was a domestic violence issue with them, and charges were brought. I am unclear on what happened here, but it seems that when the police were called, she began to attack the officers, which made this a much bigger deal than it would have been normally. It seems from my end that her boyfriend attacked her, and then the police got involved and she attacked them. I have been in domestic violence situations many times in my life, and I will tell you that once you get hit, hurt, or berated once, twice, or three times, you start to fight back. You have to fight back. Unless, of course, you're a woman in danger, and then the best advice is to, quote-unquote, give in. For those of you who don't know what I am referencing here, it's the common advice given to women who are about to be raped. Give in and don't fight back. It will just make him matter. While this can be true and that doing whatever is necessary to save your life is required, I would also say that this sentiment is deeply embedded in our culture. The headlines of the story about Heather Locklear's fight with her exes were that she punched one guy in the face and attacked the police when the other called the cops. 
Neither paints an accurate picture, but more important than what happened those days is the undercurrent in the retelling of it, that she should have given in, not fought back. The leading narrative is that she is crazy or even asking for it. Heather has struggled with alcoholism. She was charged with a hit and run in 2010, although no one was injured. She hit a sign near her house and failed to report it. Celebrity is no favor to Locklear. She has had DUIs and public drunkenness complaints and a possible overdose that resulted in a 5150 in 2018. The most recent report is of a public meltdown on a balcony in a building in Malibu in 2023, where she was reportedly talking to herself and acting erratically. It's very difficult to say how much of this is true. She could have been running lines for all we know. But as someone who has been 5150'd and suffered from trauma-induced hallucinations, some of which took place in my car while I was driving, I have a lot of understanding and empathy for her situation. I can't imagine the dimension celebrity would add to such nightmarish struggles. The fact that she is relatively private and there are no biographies about her, with the exception of the 1995 book, Heather, makes it difficult to know the truth of her experience. There has been talk that a memoir is in the works, reportedly as a reaction to Tommy Lee's 2004 book, Tommyland, and the 2019 Motley Crue documentary, The Dirt. Their marriage was a topic in both, and she felt like it might be time to tell her side of the story. I really hope she does. She has stated publicly that Tommy did not abuse her inside their marriage, and she refused to speculate on whether or not he abused Pamela in theirs. Regardless of what happened in her two marriages, it would be a good thing for the public record to hear about her experiences as TV's reigning queen in the 1980s and 1990s. Firsthand, without any of the fanfare or relentless slut-shaming slant. Melrose Place is a long-running evening soap with too many twists and turns to cover in a synopsis, but I will do my best to give you the background you need to understand my discussion of Heather Locklear's character, Amanda Woodward. The show premiered on the fledgling Fox Network in 1992 and had seven 32-35 episode long seasons. It was a spin-off of 90210, which ran 10 seasons. Heather Locklear's character, Amanda Woodward, was brought on specifically to spice the show up in Season 1, Episode 21, entitled Picture Imperfect. Locklear's character stayed for the entire run of the show, always billed as Special Guest Star. The show centers around a group of 20-somethings living in a courtyard building off of Melrose Ave on Melrose Place in West Hollywood. Amanda is the only character who is supposed to be a little older than the rest of the building's residents. She is a working woman, powerful, strong, and not playing the kind of low-stakes games as the other girls at Melrose. Their lives intersect and drama ensues. The show's main character is Allison Parker, played by Courtney Thorne Smith. Allison is a meek Midwesterner trying to make her way in the big bad world of Los Angeles advertising. 
Amanda makes her debut as the creative director at D&D Advertising Agency, where Allison works. They start out as equals, but Amanda is later promoted above Allison and becomes her direct supervisor and eventual owner. She also buys the building on Melrose Place, making her Allison's boss and landlord. Allison lives with Billy Campbell, played by Andrew Hsu, at the apartment building that Amanda later comes to own. Billy is a writer making his living as a cab driver, which makes zero sense, specifically in Los Angeles. Allison and Billy start as friends, but their relationship quickly devolves into a drama-heavy romance that includes storylines like Allison leaving Billy at the altar after discovering she was molested by her father as a child. Tertiary characters of the ensemble cast include Matt Fielding, played by Doug Savant. Matt is the resident moral compass, a literal social worker and a gay man. He is mostly saddled with boring storylines, but he is the glue that holds Melrose Place together. That is until his exit in season six. Joe Reynolds, played by Daphne Zuniga, is the dark-haired New Yorker trying to sell her artsy photography as commercially viable work at the same advertising agency, D&D, that Allison and Amanda work at. Joe falls for Jake Hansen, played by Grant Show, who is the rough-and-tumble motorcycle mechanic responsible for the spinoff from 90210 to Melrose. Jake worked for Kelly Taylor's mom and had an affair with the teenaged Kelly, bringing the cast of 90210 to Melrose Place in search of the hunky guy making Kelly crazy and thus creating the crossover series. The resident married couple of the building and the building's managers are Jane and Michael Mancini. Jane is a designer played by Josie Bissett. Michael is a doctor played brilliantly by Thomas Calabro. Their characters start out as responsible and tame, but later Michael turns into one of the most outrageous soap characters in the history of the genre. He cheats on Jane with fellow doctor Kimberly Shaw, played by Marsha Cross of Desperate Housewives fame. Marsha and Michael get married, but not before she dies in a car accident caused by Michael. But Kimberly returns, not really dead, and with a revenge plot on her scarred mind. While Kimberly was in a coma, assumed dead, Michael married Jane's little sister, Sydney Andrews, played by Laura Layton. I have devoted an entire episode to Sydney Andrews, and as I mentioned, it is highly recommended listening. Sydney is nearly murdered by Michael on their honeymoon. She survives and parlays her connections as a former prostitute into a successful career as the top Hollywood madam. Sydney eventually dies in a car accident that is unrelated to Michael. Her husband after Michael and the man she was married to at the time of her death was Craig Field, played by David Charvet. Craig later becomes involved with Michael Mancini's kid sister, Jennifer, played by Alyssa Milano. Jennifer ends up with Billy after she cons his second wife, Samantha, played by Brooke Langton, into cheating on him and therefore breaking up their marriage. A lot of other characters grace the small screen of Melrose over the show's seven-season run, including Lisa Rinna, whose character Taylor McBride premiered in season five. 
she came to Melrose with her husband, Kyle McBride, played by Rob Estes, who later married Amanda in season seven. Taylor convinces her husband to move to Los Angeles from Boston in pursuit of her obsession with Dr. Peter Burns, played by Jack Wagner, who is also one of Amanda's many conquests and a colleague of Michael Mancini. Taylor is the kid sister of Peter's dead wife. Peter initially doesn't recognize her because so much time has passed, but similarly to Sidney and Michael, the obsession runs deep. Peter later ends up with Amanda's high school best friend, Eve Cleary, played by Rena Sofer. Eve served 15 years in prison after murdering her football player boyfriend, who tried to rape Amanda in high school. The series ends with Amanda finally selling the Melrose Place building and starting her new life with her latest husband, Kyle McBride. They build their dream house and plan to start a family. Unfortunately, Amanda lost Kyle's baby in her second miscarriage of the series in a dramatic arc that I will get into in my scene breakdowns. I have chosen scenes from episodes that cover the entire range of the series, starting in Season 1 and ending in Season 7. But before I get into the specifics of Amanda's storylines, let me talk a little bit about her as a character and how she is informed by Heather Locklear's image and the characters she had embodied up to that point in her career. When Locklear started on Melrose, she was barely 30. In 1995, the actress turned 33 and began to embody a more grown-up image. She was the epitome of the California girl in the 1980s. She was born and raised in Thousand Oaks, a town just outside of Calabasas in Ventura County, on the valley side of Malibu. She was a good girl who radiated health and naivety. It wasn't until her marriage to Tommy Lee in the mid-1980s and her character on Dynasty, Sammy Jo Carrington's pregnancy and subsequent child, that her image started to shift from a good girl to an all-American bitch. I'm not going to spend that much time discussing Dynasty on this episode, but I hope to come back to it at a later date. Suffice it to say that Sammy Joe was a firecracker with hot hair and hotter clothes. It was this role that informed her later portrayal of Priscilla Davis in Texas Justice a decade later. Locklear's first really grown-up role was Drew Barrymore's mom in Firestarter in 1984. Locklear was 21 and Barrymore was 9. As I previously mentioned, she played alongside Diane Cannon in the Disney movie of the week, Rock and Roll Mom. That movie pitted Cannon and Locklear against each other as singing sensations vying for the limelight. Although Locklear's character is the younger of the two, Cannon is the upstart. As Locklear's roles started to shift to more grown-up and also more devious, she began to break the mold of what was expected of her. That shift and the shift from the 1980s to the 1990s created space for a new kind of primetime bitch. This one wasn't the languid Joan Collins. She was a different breed, a bouncy blonde with a mean side. The first episode of Melrose Place I'm going to talk about is in season one. 
As I said earlier, Locklear's character, Amanda, was introduced at the end of Season 1 in Episode 21, entitled Picture Perfect. By the second-to-last episode of the season in Episode 31, called State of Need, Amanda is pregnant with Billy's baby. Billy and Allison are not together romantically, but they do live together in the building that Amanda now owns. Amanda and Allison also work together at D&D Advertising. When Amanda and Billy start dating, Allison is jealous and realizes she has feelings for Billy. But when her old boyfriend Keith, played by William R. Moses, who had been married when Allison and he were dating unbeknownst to her, comes back fresh from a divorce to sweep Allison off her feet, she transfers her feelings for Billy to Keith and therefore gives Billy the green light to move forward with Amanda. Amanda and Billy end up breaking up, and so do Allison and Keith. Billy and Allison get together, and then before you know it, Amanda has discovered she is pregnant with Billy's baby. Amanda, wearing a sleeveless turtleneck sweater in an oh-so-subtle shade of baby blue, white pants, and tennis shoes, meets Billy to discuss her options. She looks very grown up in her casual Mary Tyler Moore does Marina Del Rey look. She isn't yet showing, but she looks prepared to hide a baby bump should one occur during this boatside jaunt. Amanda makes it clear that she does not want to have an abortion or give the baby up for adoption. She adds the caveat that it's not for moral reasons, she just can't. It's nice to know she isn't anti-choice. Billy asks, This is my baby, right? Disgusted with Billy's question, she says it is his baby and then goes on to say, I'm not asking anything of you, Billy. I don't want you to feel obligated or sacrifice a thing. It's my responsibility, and I never thought otherwise. Now, on the one hand, this is exactly the kind of, if you want to be treated like an equal, you have to act like one, bullshit response I would expect from a boys club babe. But the second part of their conversation, and quite frankly, the tone of her speech generally, makes it clear to me that Amanda understands exactly the kind of double-edged sword she is forced to swallow as a side effect of her sex. Billy says, What are you going to do? Amanda replies, Manage like I always do. I'll be all right. She goes on to say that she plans to tell her father, but knows that it will hurt him, which will hurt her. Billy, in typical I-don't-give-a-fuck-about-your-best-interest fashion, suggests not telling her father. The suggestion of hiding her pregnancy and foregoing familial support not only avoids reality, but it also alienates and isolates Amanda in service of protecting Billy's ego and nothing else. Thank God he isn't her boyfriend anymore, because this asshole would let her overdose on heroin before being blamed for her addiction. I drew that connection from my own life. I had a boyfriend in my mid-twenties who discouraged me from telling my mother about my heroin addiction, an addiction that wouldn't have existed if not for this boyfriend. Later, I, like Amanda, got pregnant. And yes, it was his baby. I had the abortion alone. We broke up soon after, but his lackluster love continued to haunt me for a decade. 
Amanda says, You're off the hook, Billy. Go on with your life, your romance with Allison. I'll be fine. She turns and walks away in her sensible adult pastels and tennis shoes. We could all learn a thing or two from Amanda Woodward. In the second season, storylines have changed. Billy and Allison are still going strong, and Amanda had a miscarriage, so she is no longer pregnant with Billy's baby. Joe lost her boyfriend Jake to Amanda, who now has the awesome reputation of stealing two boyfriends in less than half a season. Amanda picked up Jake one night over dinner with the classic Amanda Woodward line, nothing like a dry Chardonnay on a hot summer night. Joe takes a chance on a new guy named Steve McMillan, played by Parker Stevenson. Steve is a big client at D&D Advertising, where all three women are working. Allison is the point person on the McMillan account. He is fashioned after Steve Jobs. He may have asked Joe out, but it was the substitution for the real object of his desire, Allison. Allison loves the attention, but she is in love with her beau, Billy. After a meeting with Steve McMillan at D&D, Joe and Amanda hang back. Amanda is wearing one of her signature power suits. This one is red, with padded shoulders and a matching miniskirt. I don't recall Joe or Allison's outfits. In an effort to get the gossip on Joe and Steve, Amanda starts trashing Allison, a trick that creates a common enemy, therefore forcing a bond. It doesn't work, but it does prove effective at getting Joe to show her true colors. Amanda points out the chilly reception Joe received from Steve and asks if it is because of his obvious attraction to Allison. Shocked and appalled at the suggestion that Steve would be interested in Allison or that Allison would have set Joe up with Steve to insulate herself from temptation, Joe balks at Amanda's backhanded slap. It's difficult to completely side against Amanda here, because although she is using this information to manipulate and injure Joe, it's all true. Amanda says, Allison can't fall in love with anyone who's not already taken. Low blow, Amanda. But Allison did set Joe up to keep herself from fucking Steve and destroying her relationship with Billy. She also started dating Billy while Amanda was pregnant with his baby, and although that one is a bit of a chicken-in-the-egg situation on who stole whose boyfriend first, either way, I side with Amanda. Joe responds, Oh, and you can? Amanda says, If this is about Jake, he pursued me. To be fair to Joe, it isn't just about Jake. It is also about the aforementioned Billy situation. This is the part where Joe shows her true colors. Fuck her for making Jake's actions Amanda's responsibility. I don't care if Amanda did pursue both Jake and Billy. She wasn't the one with a girlfriend or a responsibility to that woman. Girl code is dangerous when it extends past personal loyalty and becomes about insulating men. It lessens the accountability of men by placing the blame on women, once again making them suffer the weight of the consequences of actions that are not theirs. I'm not saying it's great to fuck your coworker's boyfriend, but it certainly doesn't rise to the level of cheating on your girlfriend, and it isn't morally unjust as far as I can tell. 
It's messy, and you're probably letting yourself down, but I refuse to acknowledge a world where I am responsible for someone else's relationship, especially if that someone is a man, and specifically if phrases like homewrecker are being thrown around, a term that was created by the patriarchy to evade accountability by the guilty party. In case this isn't clear, that is the man. Amanda responds, Joe, don't presume to know anything about my relationship with him. The him is Jake. Joe says, Well, if it's about anything other than sex, I'd be floored. First of all, great use of the term floored. Second, Joe is not only calling Amanda a slut, she is also saying that her good looks are the only thing holding a man. She is treating this grown-up, successful businesswoman like a tramp just because she wears hot power suits and has bouncy blonde hair. Who is the traitor to women in this scenario? Hint, it's the slut-shaming Joe and not the boyfriend-fucking Amanda. In truth, it's probably Jake, and it's definitely Billy, too. Amanda says, It's about a lot more. It's the most intense relationship of my life and Jake's. Joe says, That's great, Amanda. That's great for both of you. That dismissive little bitch. Joe has adopted the universal language of men, cruel and dismissive. Next time on Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures, I will pick back up my discussion of Heather Locklear's character Amanda Woodward in Melrose Place. I will end the episode with Texas Justice, the 1995 TV miniseries that should be held up as a shining example for all true crime miniseries. Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash, and National Treasures. This is Madeline Jane Auble.